a couple of Sundays ago, and we got back into our study in Genesis, we, we looked at the first three words of verse 1, and uh, that's about as far as we got last time. We're going to go a little further, but I can't uh, tell you how much further we're going to go. Uh, could be another couple of words. Actually, we're going to read down through verse 5. We're going to see this in a general sense, and then next week we're going to even break it down all the more. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. And I think it's important that we do this, especially in this chapter, because of uh, the richness of the lessons that we're learning, being that this chapter indeed is, is the pivotal chapter for all of the Bible, where we see that sin has been introduced into the perfect world, into the perfect paradise that God had created. And, of course, a couple of weeks ago we talked about that introduction. So if you haven't been with us, you might want to sign up for the previous studies in the book of Genesis. Verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Spirit this morning once again. As we do take the time to dig deep into this chapter, we, we need, Lord, the leading and the guiding direction of your Spirit for wisdom and understanding that we may know without any doubts, Lord God, what these words are saying to us, what, is, what it is describing for us in this chapter, and how it affects us even today. Lord, may we be open, attentive to all that you have for us. Lord, we want to know you more, even through this chapter. So that is our desire and our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Recently, the National Museum of Natural History, one of the museums belonging to the famed Smithsonian Museums, and funded by donations as well as our tax money, opened its new exhibition on human origins, the Hall of Human Origins as it is called. Richard Potts, the curator and director of the Smithsonian's Human Origins program, was asked by two news agencies, one conservative, the other liberal mainstream, questions concerning the lack of any references to God, or even addressing the debate between creation and Darwinian evolution. Potts' answer to CNSNews.com as to why there weren't any references to God was that the Natural History Museum, and I quote uh, Potts, 
is a science museum, and all the objects that a museum can possibly display about the origins of humans have been uncovered in the context of doing the science of evolution, unquote. Now, I, I want you to notice that he said all the objects that a museum can display, can possibly display about the origins of humans have been uncovered. He's not accurate and he's not right because all means all and the Bible isn't there. The Bible is a source of human origin. Well, we go on. As to the question asked by the Washington Post, whether creationism would be found in the hall of human origins, Potts replied, there's no Adam and Eve here. He continued by saying, if you believe that the world and man was created in seven days and that it's only thousands of years old, you might have a little problem with an exhibition that talks about a process of six million to eight million years, end quote. And yet when asked, and please listen to this, when asked what he, hoped, what he would hope visitors would take away from the exhibit, he said, a sense of the sacred. It's okay to laugh, that's good. Didn't he just say this thing was not about anything having to do with God or if you believe in Adam and Eve, but oh, he wants people to go away from this museum with a sense of the sacred. <laughs> well, so our hard-earned tax dollars have paid for the promulgation of the religion of secular, humanistic, atheistic evolution. Because let's face it, that's religion. If you want people to go away with a sense of the sacred, you're talking about religion. And I bring these things up for a couple of reasons. First of all, the American people need to be informed that they have been hoodwinked and deceived into thinking that if some great institution like the Smithsonian doesn't mention God or the Bible, that it has in fact taken a neutral position. Well, there can't be a neutral position in regards to God, in regards to Christ, and in, re in regards to the scriptures. You cannot take a neutral position. One is either for Christ or against Christ. And we know that from the very lips of Jesus himself, from the very heart and words and lips of Jesus, who said in Luke eleven twenty three, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. He that is not with me is against me. Now, the second reason pertains to our study today. Because if there is no Adam and Eve here, as Mr. Potts put it, then consider this today. If there is no Adam and Eve here, then why even bother studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis? Why even think about studying the first three chapters? Why even think about studying chapter 3 itself? Why even bother with the condition of the world today? Why bother with the condition of the world today? Aren't we, because of the great process of evolution, becoming a better, more refined civilization? Are we? 
Have we not finally evolved beyond the assumed and apparent evils that we imagined and had plagued our cultures and societies because of that ancient preoccupation with the mythology of the supposed sins, transgressions, and iniquities of humankind? Boy, that was a mouthful. I lost my breath on that one. If we have no more ultimate purpose than to live out the evolutionary process until we die, why then is there such a wrestling within man between what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong? But we, but should we, I I ask, but should we take seriously the biblical worldview that we mentioned last time? That man actually began at the very peak and summit of the created order in complete contrast and opposition to the evolutionary process and theory. Should we take seriously that man actually began at the very peak and summit of the created order and because of man's sin or Adam's sin, (coughs) the history of humanity is the story of a shameful, disgraceful spiritual and moral decline? Because then we are able to understand more fully why we see what we see around us today. That humanity is worse than ever before and not getting better. Humanity is worse than ever before and it is not getting better. Last time we dealt with the sudden appearance of sin into the Garden of Eden. Introduced by the serpent, we connected to Satan, the fallen Lucifer of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And I, and I mentioned something that I, I would hope that you would, would truly consider and, and contemplate. I stated that sin didn't begin on earth, it actually began in heaven. And just as a point of review and a place where we can begin, let's, let's look at, at one statement made by Lucifer in, in, in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. We need to see this. We need to get back there, again, kind of a point of reference and a, as well as a point to begin. This anointed cherub, as it says in Ezekiel 38, or 28, of this very same being, that we see called Lucifer here in the King James Version. It says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the height or the heights of the clouds. But I want you to take note of the last I will of Lucifer. He says, I will be like the Most High. Now take any one of those five I wills and you realize that this Lucifer now is exalting himself pridefully. But that last one, I will be like the Most High. Why does Satan choose that particular ambition? Why does he choose that particular ambition and desire? 
Well, in the book, The Invisible War by Donald Gray Barnhouse, the author says this, in the story of Abram, we have the record of an incident revealing the inwardness of the name Most High. Abram was returning home after the battle with uh, the kings and the deliverance of Lot. We read that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, the communion elements, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Did you get it? Did you get that last statement? He said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Here is the key to the pride of Satan, Barnhouse goes on to say. God is revealed as El Elyon, in the Hebrew, the Most High God. And in this character, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is what Lucifer wanted to be, the possessor of heaven and earth. His rebellion was not a request for God to move over so that he might share God's throne. It was a thrust at God himself. It was an attempt to put God out so that Satan might take his place as possessor of the heavens and the earth. And so we can see clearly then that when Satan appears in the garden in the form of of the serpent to tempt Eve and to tempt Adam, it is a renewed effort on his part to further his ambition. Now there are a few things we already know. He failed in taking heaven. He did not take heaven. In fact, God casts him out of heaven and a third of the angels that followed him. Cast out of heaven. And so he becomes determined to strengthen his wicked grasp on earth through earth's inhabitants, or earth's residents, which were at the time, of course, only Adam and Eve. Now, he introduces his will subtly. Remember his five I wills. He's introducing his will subtly, slyly, craftily, cunningly. That's what we learn about this serpent. What is his will? In terms of definition, what is his will? His will is that which is contrary to God's perfect will. Satan's will is that which is contrary to God's perfect will. And now we see the dilemma. After Satan's rebellion, there are two wills now. Satan's and God's. But there is only one perfect will. I'm going to ask you a question to keep in mind throughout the rest of this study, and I'll ask it again at the end. How many wills will we see at the end of this study? So far we've just come upon two. God's will and Satan's will. How many wills will we see at the end of what we do today? Let's go back to verse 1 now. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. By the way, that's uh, the old English spelling for subtle. 
If you type that out in, in Word, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft Word, it comes up with a underline and tells you it's misspelled. Just thought you need, need to know that. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? Did God really say? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did he really say that? You know, while we spent a considerable portion of our last study on the person of Satan, uh, let me add just one more thought. And I really thought about this thought and presenting it at this point of the study rather than toward the end. And I, and I hope that, there, that you'll understand why. Because I believe it needs to be kept in perspective why we're emphasizing Satan's ideas and thoughts and, and, and will. But the representation of Satan as a serpent is quite significant in that it makes the inspiration of Moses saving Israel by lifting up a bronze serpent all the more stimulating as well as challenging since Jesus identifies himself with that very serpent. Now, for your understanding, if you're not familiar with the story in the book of Numbers, I ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel going through the wilderness experience and, and, and being bitten by, by many, uh, many types of serpents or snakes, as it were. And many of them dying because of it. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 8, The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. So the God is telling Moses to make this serpent. Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. Being that it was a fiery serpent really describes for us uh, the kind of, of uh, metal or whatever was used. because, And, and you'll see that it was a, a bronze uh, serpent. But... It says, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Whoever has been bitten, when he looks upon or she looks upon that serpent that is lifted up, they shall live. They won't die. And Moses made a serpent of brass. So brass or bronze being the fiery serpent in the way that it was made. And put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, consider the words of Jesus. Two verses before that great verse that we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The very two previous verses. Jesus says this, verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, describing that incident in Numbers, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In essence, it is whoever looks upon it. And does exactly what God says. If you look upon it, you'll be saved. If you believe upon the one on a pole, you'll be saved. And what does that translate to us in our minds? Jesus on a cross. Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Jesus dying for your sins and mine. And if you believe that he did, you shall be 
saved. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you know that that very same phrase was based upon Jesus' story, or not story, but Jesus telling the account of the book of Numbers? Being as the serpent. Now don't let that confuse you here. Because in this particular imagery, the serpent, which is a personification of sin and rebellion, is made of bronze, which is a metal associated with judgment since it was made by fire. And the lifting of this bronze serpent, therefore, is the lifting up of sin that is judged in the form of a cross. We need to keep that imagery in mind. So how interesting it is then that we find in the, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis that Satan takes the form of a serpent. Or possesses, as it were, a serpent. Which probably was standing upright. A lot of people believe that to be true. Spoke in such a way that Eve was not freaked out by this serpent speaking. And would later then be turned into a creepy crawly type of snake. We'll talk about that later. The point is this. He comes subtly. And brings sin into the into the garden. The word in our text in verse 1, subtle, means wise, as it pertains to having a certain cunning or craftiness or slyness. Not wise in the sense of godliness, but wise in the sense of cunning. This being uh, with whom Eve dealt was more than a match. This being with whom Eve dealt was more than a match for her except for one thing. Now please understand this. Things break down here in just a moment. But understand this. This serpent, this being, was more than a match for Eve except for one thing. And that one thing is that she actually had the word of God. She actually had the word of God. Now I'm going to tell you right here, right now, Eve may have had the word of God. It wasn't a whole lot that God had said. And we'll see what it was, what portion it was that that was stated. But she had enough of God's word to be able to match the wiles and the cunning of this serpent. The word would have come to her through Adam because God actually gave the word to Adam for Adam to give to her. Now with that word to guide her, even though it was quite brief in her day, she should have been more than a match for her foe. And I say that because, you see, we have the full counsel of the word of God. We have not only the Hebrew scriptures, which were preached by Paul, and actually Christ was preached by the apostles using the Hebrew scriptures. But we now have the New Testament, and all 66 books together making this one book is the inspired Word of God. We have all of the Word of God that we need. I guess the question is, is Satan being more subtle than you, 
even if you have the word of God, you should be no match for him. But all of that cunning and craftiness of the evil one would have availed him nothing had the woman simply responded to every suggestion with a statement, thus saith the Lord. For the Lord said this. Now some of you are saying, yeah, but she did answer him. Well, that's, this is for next week. We're going we're to deal with the things that she did say to Satan. But we're going to find out that what she said didn't always line up with God's word. The point is this, that she said what God had said that would have settled the issue. When Jesus was tempted at the onset of his earthly ministry by Satan, those 40 days and 40 nights, especially when Satan came to him and, and offered him, as it were, the world, you know, if he would just bow down and worship Satan. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he proceeded to give him God's word at each and every place where he was confronted. Jesus is our example of taking God's word and saying, Thus saith the Lord, you can't beat me. There had to have been some kind of beauty. There had to have been certainly a, 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 an amount of wisdom that, that this serpent had. And, I'll, and, and you'll see this as we go along because before his fall from heaven, Satan was probably the most brilliant being in the universe next to God himself, possessing the highest of all created intelligences based upon what we read in Isaiah and what we read in Ezekiel last time. But if you'll go to Ezekiel 28 verse 12 and just look at this one particular verse... And again, I, I remind you that even though the prophecy itself was directed primarily to the king of Tyre, there is that symbolism that God is also dealing with the, inf the influence of this king, which would have been Satan himself. So when we see the pictures of, of uh, uh, an angel being described, when we see the pictures of an anointed cherub or, or any of these particular statements being, being made, it is also being directed to Satan. But here in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, notice, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is the reason why Satan began to take a prideful look at himself. He says, hey, wait a minute, I've got wisdom, and I'm a pretty beautiful being anyway. I can be like God. But now as a fallen creature, he retained his wisdom, but it wasn't the same kind of wisdom any longer. It was a wisdom that was warped, a wisdom that was bent, a wisdom that was twisted by sin, by his pride. And he used that craftiness against God's very own peak of creation. He used it against the ones who were created in the image of God, male and female created he both them. He used that wisdom against God's pinnacle of creation. And even the Apostle Paul would 
would warn concerning this particular chapter and ex- uh, experience in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 when he says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds, your minds in the church, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. How we sometimes complicate the things that are so simple for us to know. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came from heaven, took upon himself flesh. First of all, he came voluntarily, took upon himself flesh, lived as a man, died as a man. But he was more than a man. He suffered for the sins of men on the cross. He shed his blood for that offering as a offering and sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins to whoever would believe. And even after death and being placed in a tomb after three days, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death for you and for me, if we believe and trust. The simple gospel. And even from the very beginning of the New Testament church, Time and again, there were the Judaizers who would say, listen, uh, you can't become a Christian until first you become a Jew and all of that kind of stuff. We've, we've studied that when we studied the book of Acts and all. But you understand, let's complicate things. You're not saved until, you're not saved until it's Jesus plus this and plus that. Folks, no one else died for your sins but Jesus. Nobody else went to the cross except Jesus Christ. Nobody else shed his blood, blood that was effective for us than Jesus. And nobody else rose from the dead as he did for you and for me. Man tries to corrupt the simplicity. Therefore, who's really doing it? Satan is the crafty one, you see. He really wants to make you think that he looks like a guy in a red suit with a long tail and horns in his head and a pitchfork in his hand. He really wants you to think that that's what he looks like. But the Bible says he's an angel of light. So what do we need to do? We need to be ready. We need to know God's word. Don't expect somebody else to learn the word for you. You need to learn it yourself. You need to have it yourself. You need to read it yourself. You need to study it yourself. You need to pray when you study that God has given you his wisdom to be able to stand in the truth and upon the truth. Well, let's move on. With subtlety and craftiness as his plan of attack, Satan's first assault was against God's created order. Now, who was, who was created first? Adam. Eve came from where? From the side of man, from a rib, as it were. But Adam was first. There's a created order, and there's a reason for it. We'll see in just a moment. But God, God's created order is challenged by Satan immediately. 
because he appeals not to Adam's intellect, but to Eve's. Is he not cunning? Is he not crafty? He appeals to Eve's intellect. It's not saying that she didn't understand any, any more than, than, than Adam did or any less. Please understand that. But I want you to notice this statement made in the scripture. And he said unto the woman. And he said unto the woman. Satan put Eve in the place of headship. As if she were the first created, not Adam. Engaging her in the intellectual discussion concerning right and wrong. You know, I've already mentioned that she had God's word available to her, but nonetheless, she was thoroughly deceived, as Paul would state in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, please understand this, ladies. It's not an attack on you or your intellect, but it goes all the way back to the garden. Paul says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to, to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, men don't kind of go, Phew, we weren't the problem. No, wait a minute, you are the problem. Why? Because Paul says in, in Romans 5.12 that Adam first sinned. It was Adam's responsibility. You know, it tells, Paul tells women to be silent, but you know, we're struggling right now because, uh, through sin because of Adam's silence. And we'll talk about that more next time. But the cunning and craftiness of Satan becomes more apparent as does his scheming attack upon Eve's only defense. Her only defense is God's word. So what does he attack? Let's go back and read verses 1 through 5 again. Very carefully, let's read it. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said? Again, did he really say this? That you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, doesn't she know the name of that tree? Well, we'll get back to that later. Just giving you things to think about here. But of the full, a fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Ooh, when did God say that? Well, we'll get back to that later. Lest you die kaput. Now, why do I say that? Because as we'll read in just a minute, God says on the day, God says to Adam, on the day that you shall eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall begin to die. That's the literal Hebrew. Here she says, you shall die. Finished, kaput. Quarters in the eyes. All right. But let's wait for that. You know, we'll get back to that. And the serpent said <clears throat> to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, that then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God's not a good God if he's keeping this stuff from you. 
So Satan began his attack with a threefold doubt. Here we go. I'm going to give you this outline now. We're going to come back to it next time because it's very essential that we go through each point very carefully. But here's the, here's the, 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 the threefold uh, outline. A threefold doubt. First of all, Satan challenged the, author, the authority or the authorship of God's word. He challenged the authorship or the authority of God's word. Secondly, he challenged the accuracy of God's word. And then thirdly, he challenged the acceptability of God's word. And again, we're going to come back and look at these points very carefully. But we're going to deal with a little bit of it today. Are these not the same doubts, by the way? Are these not the same doubts that our enemy Satan throws out at people today? Isn't isn't this what he's saying to a lot of people today? Did God really say that? Did God really write that in his word? I think I've mentioned many times that I, I, I struggle with very modern translations of the scriptures because too often, uh, because the uh, type of, of, uh, of translation uh, process that, that they use is, is, is not a literal one. Therefore, sometimes... Uh, a lot of the truth seems to be watered down in such a way. I wish I had more time to talk about it. The point of the matter is, we can read the King James or New King James translation sometimes against some of these other translations, and we'll say, well, it, it doesn't make sense. It says something totally different. Well, that's why, that's why I'm re- reading the King James Version. But I don't want to go into all of that. But what I do want to say is this. God did say it. And when people question that, what do we say is bringing doubt. And what saddens me more than anything else is people who go to seminaries and uh, sometimes uh, seminaries that once began very strongly in the Word of God and then kind of, uh, kind of got a little bit watered down by liberal thinking and all, all of a sudden come out with the fact that, well, you know, we believe in God, but we have some struggles with what the, what the Bible says. And then they'll come up with all kinds of different ways of looking at, uh, at the translations and whatnot and, and, and bringing doubts, you know. I've known some people going to seminary that come back with more doubts than before they went in. And I can tell you and assure you that right now, as we read this Bible, your Bibles, that everything that God has written is true. I'm not going to, you know, yeah, we're going to study. We're going to see, yes, that maybe they're going to, there are going to be some apparent contradictions at times. But we study to show that they're not contradictions whatsoever. If we put together all of God's word. But Satan's still going out and trying to confuse and to confound people, even in the church. Why is it that Paul talks about being careful that we not be pushed from side to side with every wind of doctrine, just being pushed one side to the other on the sea of, of thought and, and religious thought or theological thought and, and philosophy, that we not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We stay steady on the boat of biblical truth, inerrancy, and reliability. 
Does Satan not challenge the authority and the accuracy and acceptability of God's word at every opportunity and at all costs? Doesn't he challenge it all the time? And through these challenges, doesn't he try to get us to doubt the goodness of God and the badness of sin? He's always trying to get us to doubt the goodness of God. Oh, listen. If God were, so, if God were good, he'd let you do whatever you wanted to do. Doesn't that sound good, folks? If God were good, he'd let you do whatever you wanted to do. No, that's not the goodness of God. Or as some people today were thinking, oh, that sin's not so bad. The badness of sin. You know, we say, well, you know. Oh, you Christians with the Bibles, walking around with your Bibles all the time, condemning everybody. We're not condemning anybody. But if we tell you the word of God, listen. Sin is sin. And God hates sin. God has not evolved, by the way. God has not evolved when it comes to sin. God said, you know, God hated sin then. He hates sin now. We're the ones who think that we've evolved. Oh, listen, we're not so bad. This sin isn't so bad. This little thing, this little thing. Sin is sin, folks. As far as I know, the Bible tells us that God never changes. He's immutable, which means he never changes. Hebrews 13:8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus never changes. So neither does the wickedness and effectiveness of sin. Hello, anybody home? Are we understanding what's being said here? Satan challenges us and tries to get us to doubt the goodness of God and the badness of sin. This is why we can't play games with the Word of God. We cannot play games with the Word of God. We cannot play games with God himself. And we cannot play games with the enemy of our souls. We've got to stop it. If that's what we think we're doing, we've got to stop it. And if you've been deceived into thinking that you're not doing that, you're probably doing it and you've got to stop it. Don't play games with God and his word. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Don't give him any place. Don't give him any place in your life, in your heart, in your, in your thoughts. Give him no place whatsoever. I mentioned James last time, but James 4 verses 7 through 10. Listen to what he writes in his letter. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit, come below him and submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's pretty simple to understand. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God or draw nigh to God and, and he'll draw nigh to you, which means he, you know, draw near to God, he draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and, and your joy to heaviness. But here's the key. Humble yourself in the sight. Humble yourselves in the sight of the, of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves. What a contrast that is to the pride of Satan. He never humbled himself before God. All he did was exalt himself before God. 
and even as the devil and the adversary of our souls. There's no humility whatsoever. He may be subtle and crafty. One of Satan's great weapons today is false humility. So he can use humility, but he isn't humble. And we need to not mess with false humility. We need to sincerely humble ourselves. I want to return to our outline of Satan's challenges next time and, and add to that the responses of Eve and how critical it was that she said what she said to the serpent. But another outline that we will drop now and consider next time is the general plan of attack of Satan. This is the general plan of attack. So this is a very broader or or general uh, outline, but, but it's something that you need to know. We're building, in other words, what we're doing is we're building a foundation for our understanding of the first seven verses. We'll add the other two next time. But the first seven verses of of chapter three. And here it is. Satan's first plan of attack was to introduce doubt. Did God really say that? Yea, hath God said, doubt. But in his scheming, he moves from doubt to denial. He moves from doubt to denial. God didn't say that. He didn't really say that. And once the doubt sets in and the denial sets in, after he's attacked the authorship and the authority and the uh, accuracy of God's word, it moves on to delusion and desire. Delusion? Listen, I'll tell you why God did what he did. He's not a good God as, he, as you might think. What's the delusion? He says, see, he knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be just like him. Don't you just, don't you want to be like him? Why is God keeping you from being like him? So what enters in then is the desire to be like him. When all along God said what? I'm not keeping anything from you. I've given you a whole garden of trees with fruit. And there's another tree in there, in in the midst of that garden. There's another tree there. It's called the tree of life. I've never kept you from the tree of life. I've only told you that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day that you eat of that tree, that one tree, you will begin to die. It's important at this time to remember that foundational command that the Lord God gave to Adam before Eve was even made. The key to the whole dilemma. Let's go there. Uh, Genesis 2. Just go back a page. Verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. Best thing for me to say is, don't take my word for it. Let's hear what God has to say. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree... Of the garden thou mayest eat freely. I mean, thou mayest freely eat. I mean, just have as much as you want. You're perfect here. I created this environment for you perfectly. Eat all you want. There's a signs over every tree, all you can eat. 
Am I touching any cords on anybody right now that's ready to go to a buffet? And it was free. How many of you would love to go to a buffet today that was, they said, come on in, it's free. You guys aren't hungry yet, okay. You guys are just like, I just went to a buffet, had breakfast, you know. But of the tree, it says, of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And again, literally, he says, thou shalt surely begin to die. And we'll see that next time even more closely. But here's the thing. Isn't God good by saying, avoid that because that's going to be harmful to you. That's the goodness of God. Don't do this. It's going to be harmful for you. It may be harmful physically, it may be harmful emotionally, but in the long run, it's going to be harmful eternally to you. Don't do these things. And there it is. There's the setup for next week. Now we've got to come back and see the subtlety of Satan and the sayings of, of Eve. How does that impact us today? Well, well, we'll get to that. But I asked you earlier, how many wills now will we see at the end of this study? And of course, the answer would be four. How many of you th- thought four? How many of you wish you had said four? <laughs> All right. There's four. Four wills. God's, Satan's, Eve's, and Adam's. Four wills. All because Satan introduced his will into the garden. And we'll see later on, of course, how we know that at this particular time, Adam is also included. Why? Because he eats of the fruit with Eve. We'll talk about that later. Four would later turn into six with the arrival of Cain and Abel. And then the number would just continue to grow exponentially. You could say there were might have been at one time 16 and then there was 32 and then there was 64 until we have what we have today. What do we have today? We have billions and billions of wills. which probably explains the constant conflicts that the human race has had from the beginning of time. At least from the beginning of that day. But the reality is that there is still only one perfect and totally desirable will, and that is the will of Almighty God. One perfect will. And the enemy has tried to fashion these rebellious and hostile wills into a kingdom for himself. Uh, that's, That's really his whole goal, to fashion a kingdom for himself made up of all of these wills. But with very few exceptions, he has been quite unsuccessful. How do we know that? Well, for his own good purposes, the Lord has allowed this evil to prove that the enemy in the end will fail ultimately. If you've read the end of the, of the Bible, you realize Satan will get his own. It's already been said and it's, it's been done. God has said it. 
God has prophesied it. God has not only seen it, he has executed it. Because God is outside of our time continuum. God has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. But what the enemy cannot do, God can and does. What the enemy cannot do, God can. In his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the Lord is drawing the wills of his people back to himself and establishing peace where before there was only chaos and confusion. How many of us can remember when when Jesus Christ truly came into our lives that whatever conflict we may have been going through, whatever situation we may have been dealing with, whatever chaos we have been involved in, when we gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and we we sensed the the presence of his uh, Holy Spirit in us and we made that confession of faith. We confessed with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believed in our heart that he was risen from the dead. When we did that, how many of us realized what we sensed in our hearts was the shalom, the peace of God? Every conflict was now over because Jesus Christ had won the battle for us on the cross. And it was on the cross where our sins were left. And he made us a new creature in Christ. The old was passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, I sorrow. I, I'm going to tell you this. I sorrow. I, I can look around and, and see people today. That I, I, I can tell you this, man. Your lives haven't changed. And it isn't because you haven't heard the word. Struggles in here. It's you surrendering your will, your will, to the will of of the Father. You know, that's why Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That deals with worship. And then he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. No longer live by our will, we live by God's will. That's what makes us different from the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 and following, he says, for, thou, uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, that was a battle of strongholds here in chapter uh, chapter 3 of of Genesis. Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's Satan himself. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I want to close with, with three verses of scripture that deal with the will of God. As it pertains to believers in Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that you take these particular words to heart today. Paul says in Colossians 4 verse 12. He speaks of Epaphras. A brother in the faith. He says Epaphras who is one of you. A servant of Christ. Saluteth you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we can stand in the perfect will of God. We can stand in the perfect will of God. And we need to pray for people just as Epaphras did, that, that our families, that our loved ones, that our, our people that we know and, and love, that are believers in Jesus Christ, will continue to stand in the will of God. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, this is a more pointed type of, uh, of verse, but listen, it talks about the fact that we have things that, that, that are before us that we have to avoid, we have to get away from, we have to live righteously before the Lord, and it's part of His will. The will of God is our sanctification, living that sanctification out each and every day. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. And we'll close with this. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. To give thanks to the Lord each and every day. Oh, listen. (laughs) Every one of us in this room, we could probably think of a hundred things to say, to complain, to murmur. We're a complaining society. We all got things to say about what we don't like. But the will of God is this, that in everything we give thanks. We may not understand why or what or how or when, but we know one thing, God is and Jesus is and the Holy Spirit is ever with us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And with that kind of promise, we can give thanks to God in everything. We can give thanks to God in everything. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Well, that was just the introduction. Next time we're going to get into the meat. So... It brings you back. Let's pray.